As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Today, our guest made his name in the NFL and now in television studios, but is a big-time hoop fan and former hooper and had a brother who played in the NBA. He's Nate Burleson of CBS Sports and the NFL Network, and he's coming right up. But before we get started, please download, subscribe, and if you get us on Apple, leave a rating and review. It helps a lot. Darlene, let's run it. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Welcome into another fantastic episode of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. And this week's guest, I'm thrilled to have him join us. A little bit of a step away from hoops at a surface glance, but I promise we're going to get into a great hoops conversation. We are joined on the show today by Nate Burleson, who is now working with NFL Network on Good Morning Football and CBS Sports on the NFL Today. Nate, thanks for coming on. Oh, no problem. I appreciate you having me. Now, let's be very clear here for the listeners. Um, we're not stepping away from hoops. Uh, I'm just stepping back into basketball because, one, it's my first love. So I, I watch um, as much basketball as I watch football. And for those who don't know, the most scholarship offers I had was to play point guard at Clemson. So basketball runs deep in my family. My brother coaches in the NBA. So we can talk hoops all day long. See, Nate, I'm excited for this because I sort of teed you up to do that because, oh, I am well aware. We're going to get into it. But I'm glad <laughs> that you got the opportunity to let the people know that your pedigree is thorough in both sports. That's right. I mean, I, I grew up playing both sports, but the first basketball um, that I picked up was at a very young age before I even knew what a football felt like in my hands. So um, it's definitely been something that, has been close to my heart. I mean, in my mind, I was going to the NBA, and I just chose to be wide receiver in college because I just thought that playing point guard for four years would be too stressful. So in my 17-year-old mind, I thought the least stress possible would be occasionally getting the ball at wide receiver, dancing in the end zone, and then accepting all the praise when we win, you know, diva wide receiver. <laughs> well, that's certainly a solid way to think about it. And you, of course, were drafted in the NFL by the Minnesota Vikings in 2003. So you've also played uh, for the Seattle Seahawks and the Detroit Lions. So it sounds like football was a decent choice. Would you say it panned out? <laughs> yeah, it panned out perfectly. You know, I, I joke all the time with my friends and family about being in the league and and they say, yeah, that would have been cool, but you were you were built to play football. Uh, I have the personality for everything that football um, brought into my life. And, you know, I was able to bring to life the wide receiver position. We're all pretty much cut from the same cloth. We're all entertainers. Uh, we want the shine. We want the stage. And, of course, we want to dance when we get in the end zone. So, yeah, 11-year career and now transitioning into um, the TV space. It, it, it's been a good choice. 
I, for one, am a huge fan of Good Morning Football. You guys seem like you are having the most genuine, fun time. Like, you guys got to be one of my, like, I think my favorite football morning show. I think I could say that comfortably. Yeah, I appreciate that. It means a lot. And, you know, we hear that a lot, that it, it does seem like we're having fun. And I thought to myself, whenever I find a show that I'm going to be on consistently, um, one that I commit to and, and that commits to me, I wanted to feel like, you know, four people sitting in the basement just talking. And it just so happened to be cameras on because those are the most genuine conversations. If we turn on um, the cameras and people tune in and they see, you know, four rigid folks talking about stats that you can Google, it's pretty boring. And if I was watching, I click the channel. So um, I try to bring the same type of mindset to TV, being as uh, theatric and informative and entertaining as possible. You guys are nailing it. So I want to get into a little bit more of your family because you guys, your brothers and yourself are some serious athletes. You've got your older brother, Alvin Jr., who played football at the University of Washington and Western Illinois. Your younger brother, Lindale, hooped for Nevada. Your older brother, Kevin, played in the NBA for the Charlotte Bobcats, which makes you and Kevin one of only two sets of brothers to play in the NBA and the NFL. That is super dope. Yeah, it's crazy, man. I mean, the ending being drafted to the Minnesota Vikings while he was finishing up with his degree, because um, he's only a year ahead of me. We're two years apart, but in school, he's a year ahead of me. So when I got drafted, I left school early. He was still at the University of Minnesota finishing up his degree. And then he goes to the Bobcats place for a couple of years and then goes overseas. And then he returns back as a coach where he is now. So um, it was pretty cool, man, to have my big bro in the same city that I was drafted in. Um, there was a special moment where um, he came up to the facility and I, I gave him a tour, me being a rookie, just showing off my big bro because I'm proud of him like he is of me. And then he took me up to a school. And I remember thinking, all right, I'm a rookie. I, I can jump. I, that year I had the highest vertical at the combine. And I challenged him to a dunk contest. And my brother's like, he's a shooter. Like he's a shooter, shooter at heart. He got, he got stroke and he gets buckets, but he never dunked a lot. And I was like, man, if you don't just start dunking on people, like, I'm going to be mad at you. So I would always challenge him. And I remember I had a few dunks in the holster. I had, like, the windmill. I had the Dominique two-hand windmill. Um, I had the arm and the rim, even at one, the arm and the rim, Vince Carter, that I was going to pull out. And this dude started pulling out crazy dunks that i never seen. I was like, where was all this all season, bro? He was just like, nah, I'm a shooter. So, like, that was a special moment because it was on that Golden Gophers court um, at the barn, they called it. And it was just me and him. Just going toe to toe. It reminded me of like old school, like Larry Bird, um, Magic Johnson commercial. So, um, yeah, man, me and my bro were super close still to this day. And um, you know, he'll he'll claim to to be a better football player than I am, and I'll always claim to be a better Hooper than he is. <laughs> That's hilarious. That sibling rivalry thing runs deep for sure. I'm sort of at a crossroads here because I don't know where I want to take this conversation next. You've given me so much fodder to jump into. But before we get to the finals, let's stick it with Seattle a little bit because that is somewhere that you grew up. Yes? Yeah, no doubt, man. The Sonics, baby. Right. So I guess I don't know if I've only noticed this as of late, but it really seems like Seattle has been a hotbed of basketball talent um and then obviously you get to be the claim um when it comes to football talent jamal crawford came out of that area jason terry isaiah thomas nate robinson brandon roy doug christie what was going down in seattle like what is it about that area 
Man, we just got some monsters. Can't forget about Marvin Williams who played at North Carolina. Oh, yeah, you're he right. Was a, he was the sixth man in North Carolina, ended up going number two overall. That just shows you uh, how talented he is. But, yeah, I think it was just the – oh, you can't forget about Zach Levine who came out of Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we just have we just have that, that knack for um, playing sports. Because here's the thing, and, you know, you can get philosophical, but – I'll go uh, more just weather based. Uh, you mm. know, it rains. It rains a lot. So if it rains a lot, we might not be a hotbed for the fastest people in the country because there's not a lot of kids that are going to go out there and run track when there's a possibility of rain. Now we got some speedsters. Don't get me wrong. I won the hurdles my senior year, so I went out there and I ran around that track, even in some of those rainy meets. But if you think of some of the sports that are indoor. Um, you'll find kids that at a young age are drawn to the gym. So uh, if I'm a young kid and, you know, young kids are very simple. It's like, do you want to go outside, run around when it's hot, when it's possibly raining and play football or play baseball or run track? Most kids will say, no, what's the next great thing? Let's go on the inside. And, you know, the gyms were just filled up when I was younger. Um, You know, for me, growing up in the inner city and we all know each other, football players, basketball players, um, very centrally located in, in South Seattle, uh, the the gyms were always filled up, and the camps, the basketball camps, were always filled up. If you go to like a soccer camp or a football camp or even a track camp, baseball camp, not so much. And I'm speaking specifically in the inner city. So when it comes to talented athletes, especially young African American athletes who could have been tremendous football players or even tremendous soccer stars or baseball players. That wasn't appealing to us. What was appealing was the 80s and 90s basketball, which influenced us and what we watched on TV, and then the most simplistic way to enjoy a sport, and that's being inside, away from the weather conditions, picking up a basketball, putting it on the hardwood, and working on that J. Right. So I'm from the DMV, which is known as the District Maryland and Virginia, right? And we also... I know about the DMV. Right? Like, we're also known as a hotbed. And what I have found is I can remember, especially getting it in a high school, um, you sort of take so much pride in that name that like it behooves you to be the next kid up that no represents the area. So sure, the weather baseline probably definitely plays a factor in it. But then did you find that you guys absolutely take pride in representing Seattle as this wealth of talent? No doubt, because we, we, we always kind of um, felt like we were the forgotten state. Um, you know, the Pacific Northwest is just way in the corner of the map. And when it came to the totality of athletes across all sports, we never got mentioned. And then when it came to hip hop, like all we had was Strix a lot. And when it came to to rock music, all we had was Cobain. And these were superstars in our, our eyes. But um, when it came to just being recognized, it seemed like if you wanted to be in the movies, you go to Hollywood. If you wanted to make money, you go to New York. And if you wanted some culture, you go to Miami. And if you wanted to talk football, you go to the South. And I'm like, damn, like, what are we known for? Even so much so, like, we were kind of like chameleons when it came to our culture. Like, growing up, you see, you know, some kids, like, wearing dickies and adopting the gang culture. Like, they're from L.A. And you know the roots are from L.A. Are you? Even me, I used to rock bubble jackets and hats. <laughs> fitted hats down by my eyebrows because I thought I was mace because I, I loved the East Coast and New York and what hip-hop was in the 90s. So we never really had our own type of, like, like wave. But what we did have 
was hoopers. Like, we had hoopers, and that was our thing, and they were just coming one after the other. Doug Christie kind of, like, kicked the doors down, and then everybody else was just like, yo, I'm next, I'm next. And we were putting out athlete after athlete, and that's one thing that we could call our own because Sean Kemp and Gary Payton and Dadless Shrimp and Nate McMillan, like, these guys, like, they embraced Seattle for what it was, and they weren't from there. But they embraced it. So we took pride in that, those really odd bright yellow and green jerseys that stood out. And I remember the finals where uh, Gary Payton was lined up versus Jordan and just talking trash. And I'm like, yo, like that, right? That's us. That's, that's Jordan, the best in the game. Like that's, that's the current GOAT, the living legend. And GP, our GP, is in the finals talking greasy to him. <laughs> and we, we loved that. The glove was like, it was almost like who we were. Like, we're going to embrace that. Even even so much so, like, I was the baby glove in high school. So I, I adopted that. I was like, yo, I'm I'm about to get busy. And I remember facing Jamal Crawford in um, districts. And Jamal was cooking that year. Like, I mean, when I say cooking, he was chopping dudes down. And I grew up with Jamal. Like, he used to spend a night at the crib weeks at a time. So, like, we were close. Uh, he's the same age as my older brother. And I remember us playing against in the districts, and I took pride in it. I was like, this is going to be my glove moment. Like, I'm going to shut him down. And I did. Like, I got busy. It was, like, one of my best defensive efforts, offensive efforts, that kind of put me on the map. And, you know, I was all-state football, basketball, on track that year. And for me, like, I was able to have that sense of pride uh, because I saw GP doing it. And to this day, like, it, it, it comes out naturally organically every couple of weeks I'll mention something about Seattle hoop on the football show, which I'm pretty sure people are tired of, but I can't <laughs> help it, man. It's who I am. No, I definitely. And it sounds like a very rich fabric. I mean, that's super dope that you got to play with Jamal Crawford, who uh, seems to have avoided aging as far as his NBA yeah. careers. Now, listen, when you going up against Jay Crossover, like, tell me, did he get you one time, Nate? Or like, did you only serve him up? Nah, like, he, he, he got – I think he scored, like, 10 or 12 that game. But for him, that was, like, being shut down. Uh, but one thing Jamal always had was the handle. Like, he was slick with it. And he had a cold crossover. It wasn't like the Tim Hardaway U-Tap two-step. Mm-hmm. It, it was more like the Iverson um, because he practiced that religiously. Like, Jamal would be at the house. We always had a couple noodles at the crib because it was the cheapest thing we could buy. My mom and dad had four boys. And we'd wake up, and I'd want to run outside. Kevin and Jamal would want to hoop. And Jamal, before we went outside, he would say, put in, come fly with me. So his game mimicked uh, Jordan and Iverson, which is why you can see, like, he has that, like, running gun. I can put it up from anywhere on the court, like AI. But he also has the discernment and a little bit of um, selective uh, a shot uh, placement when it comes to uh, him trying to mimic Jordan. Uh, but, like, that particular game, I remember – uh, adopting one thing that I, I teach kids now, even my two boys who play um, basketball, is you look at that belly button area. You look at that stomach. Because Jamal, would, if you watch him play, he'll hit you with the neck. Because he was influenced by all that shaking and baking and one big say, oh, baby, my God. Like, we love that stuff. But Jamal was the only one that could pull it off seamlessly coming down the court. And that's how he would get you. If he was looking at his head, he'd start snapping his neck and moving his neck. You're done. If you're looking at the handle, forget about it. You reach out teeth. Even if you look at his feet, Jamal was he, – he still to this day, he'll stutter his feet like he's getting ready to attempt to dunk, and then he'll hit you with a crossover. So all these different elements that made his handle so spectacular, 
I wasn't falling for it because I knew his game. So I would just look in the middle of his stomach. If his stomach was where I needed it to be, I knew I didn't need to worry about where the ball was because he can move everything else on his body. His stomach will always be the center of my focus. And that's how you lock up a dude with handle. That is textbook. We need to clip this off, run it back for the kids in today's day. <laughs> like that is textbook lockdown defense. And man, if you could slow up Jamal Crawford, you clearly were doing something on a defensive end. So let's run it back though, Nate, because before Seattle, there was a place that's near and dear to your heart that also happens to be in the NBA finals. I hear you have a Maple Leafs tattoo. Yeah, I got a couple of them. I got uh, the flag actually on my calf, and then I have just the, the uh, maple leaf tattooed on my arm along with Washington underneath it, and then underneath that, California, which are basically the places that influence me. All my tattoos tell just one big story. Like if I pass away or when I die, I want people to be able to look at me like writings on the wall or hieroglyphics and be able to tell my story. So I was born in Canada. Um, born in Alberta, Calgary, when my dad was playing football. Like I said, my mom and dad had four boys. I was the only one out of the four born outside the country. Um, so I was there uh, just during my infancy stages. Um, and people always ask, like, why do you represent Canada so hard? And why do you have a tattoo on you if you didn't live out there? It's because it's it's part of my story and it influenced me so much so that I wanted to be in the CFL. Like, when I was young, I didn't know the difference between the CFL and the NFL because my dad played in the CFL. Like, he's my, my everyday superhero. Like, you can't, you can't tell me that, you know, Deion Sanders or Jerry Rice or Emmitt Smith was bigger or badder. You couldn't tell me that Superman or Batman was stronger. So whatever my dad did, I was like, yo, I want to I go play in Canada. And that, like, that love, that, like, that unwavering dedication to play football like my dad, like, that allowed me to fall in love with the sport that, really shaped my life from a financial perspective and now from a career perspective. So um, that's the reason why I have the Maple Leaf tattooed on me, because if my dad didn't play in the CFL uh, or, or maybe even retired before I was born and was just working his job, like he ended up doing in Seattle, maybe I didn't, I wasn't raised around like that type of love for the game. So um, yeah, man, I'm a Canadian through and through. The Raptors, winning the NBA Finals or a team returning to Seattle? You only get one. Oh, because I was raised in Seattle and I know how thirsty the the city is, I'm going to go with a team returning uh, to Seattle. I know how much the city loves, loves basketball. Like, don't get me wrong. Football has been huge as of lately. Like, Pete Carroll ushered in a new era for the Seahawks, brought a Super Bowl there, went to another Super Bowl after, and, like, the buzz is real. Like, it hasn't been like that ever in Seattle when it comes to football. The Mariners are strong. Like, I still remember the Randy Johnson days and the A-Rod days early in his career. Like, I, I, I rocked the Mariners. Of course, King Griffey, the kid, like, he was a Seattle Mariner. Cool. But – City doesn't love any sport like they loved basketball. Like the Seattle Sonics were something special. I mean, they're still in their feelings about Durant really being a, a Sonic. Like Durant, people reluctantly cheer for Durant because they're mad that he left. They're like, yo, like he's a Sonic fan. Like, you know, Durant's our guy. Like, I don't care what anybody say. Like, we drafted him. So, um, you know, I, I just feel like the city's waiting. And I don't want to pluck another team. Like, for a while, there was rumor that the Memphis Grizzlies were going to come 
because they weren't building an arena and you know how that conversation goes. You can come play in Seattle and we'll give you what you need. I don't want to pluck another team from their city because I know how that feels. When Seattle left, it was a huge, a huge void in the city uh, because we're a basketball town. Hey, Nate, uh, this is uh, Bruce, the producer. And uh, I remember I used to oversee our NBA finals coverage for SportsCenter at ESPN for many years. And one of the most memorable finals ever was 1996. Um, yep. And I, it's so weird what you remember. The Key Arena was like the noisiest house I had ever been in. And I've been going to NBA games for like 30 years by that point. The The fans in Seattle are just absolutely unbelievable. And that series was so weird because you remember the Bulls took a 3 nothing lead, right? Yeah. And, and then and then what happened? And, and everybody assumed that it was over. It was, like, was kind of like, all right, let's change the channel. It's a wrap. Jordan's going to do what Jordan does. And then all of a sudden, the Sonics came alive, and we're like, "Holy, snap, holy smokes! Like, we got a chance to get ourselves, we got a chance to get ourselves a ring." So they win the second, they win the fourth game. It's like, all right, you're still going to lose. Then they win the fifth game, and now it's three-two. And I remember at the time, they 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 used to run the finals like um, two-three-two with the games, right? where the first two yep. would be the home team, then the middle three would be the team with the second best record, then six and seven would be back to the team with the best record. So I remember it was like coming up on Father's Day, right? And it's like, all right, they're up three nothing. I'm going to be home for Father's Day. They just got to, you know, just got to win one more. And then the Bulls lose two, and we're all like, oh, man, we got to go back to Chicago now. I'm going to miss Father's Day. But it was so memorable because yeah. uh, just just – they were that close to making something unbelievable happen. Yeah, and, you know, for us as a city, it was even more memorable because even though we loved our Sonics, I think everybody kind of understood, if you got Jordan on your team, like every everybody else, they're the underdog. Like, we weren't the bad boys Pistons where we could, you know, implement a system where we're just going to beat up MJ and try to wear him out and physically intimidate him, you know, and, and work our way into an NBA title. That wasn't the case for us. Like, we had some talented dudes. But, you know, for the most part, we just had a couple of guys and really, really good role players. Um, and it just wasn't enough for MJ. And I know I'm sharing the narrative of a lot of teams. I mean, there's a lot of fan bases that are saying the same thing I'm saying right now. It's like there's some fan bases over the last handful of years that are going to say the same thing about the Golden State Warriors. You know, we just couldn't get past them. You know, it's funny. George Carl's a good friend, and he was on one of our other shows, uh, our Catch and Shoot show, a couple months ago. And we were talking about, you know, the uh, – he was telling the story about when he – his daughter-in-law or his daughter still lived up in the Seattle area, even though after he left uh, the, the, uh, the Sonics. So he was up there visiting her when he heard on the radio – he was in his car – that the Sonics were moving – and he's there. He gets so upset. He's there. I had to pull the car over and I started crying. And I mean, George is a very emotional guy. I mean, you know, it didn't always come out as tears. A lot of time it came out as rage. But he I mean, that had to be the reaction of so many people. And see, it was such a great basketball city for the NBA. It really was, man. It was it was a gut punch to the city, a gut punch to the city collectively, just because uh, we were so invested. And like I said, at that time. Um, we didn't have much success when it came to other sports, but 
you could identify with Seattle, and that that time was so special. Now, I have a a, a relationship with George Carl because he started one of the top uh, hoop programs in 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 Washington. It was a FOH Friends of Hoop. I remember it because there was a 16U and an 18U tryout. My brother made the older team. I made the younger team. And this is all the best kids in the state coming from the inner city to the suburbs to the, the uber-rich areas. And there was so many kids at the tryout. And I remember getting my name called. I'm like, damn, I'm the best of the best. And it wasn't like he just threw his name on there. But he was there, which blew my mind. And even at the young age, I, I thought to myself, there's no way he has enough time to be here. Like, why is he here? That's because he was so invested in the city and he loved hoop so much that he wanted to see the next generation. He did so much. So he would bring, like, players to our practices and they would hoop with us, which, which blew our minds. Like, I remember Eric Snow came by and he was hooping with us and he got into it with a friend of mine, a friend by the name of Jimmy, who uh, was one of my close friends. But Jimmy was one of those dudes that he just felt like he was great and he was but he even when nba players were there he would talk trash to them like he was talking to us i remember eric snow was like i'm gonna teach you a lesson you need to respect your elders and he my friend jimmy was like ah i don't need to respect you you're not that good and i was like jimmy you tripping bro he's an nba you tripping like, <laughs> relax and then doug christie was also there and doug was like hey, yo little man like you better chill out man seriously we're here to help you guys and it was just like after school special moment, and I was like, "Jimmy, just relax, man. They're here to help us." And, and they were like, "Okay, man. All right, you are right, you gonna keep talking shit? Okay, all right, cool." And I remember Doug was on a fast break, and Jimmy was running like he was trying to block Doug Christie's shot. This is towards the end of Doug Christie's career, and Doug threw it off his left, like left hand, like he's right on the free throw line on the fast break. Threw it off his left hand, underhand. And then planted right around the dotted line and tried to catch it, lean in, dunk style, right over Jimmy's head. And he was so mad and so high, and he banged it off the back of the rim. And he was like, hey, I told you to chill out. Like, we're way better than you guys. We're just trying to help you. And it humbled Jimmy because Jimmy thought he was good. But in that moment, Doug was like, listen, we're here to help you. But at any moment, we want to destroy you, we will. So just sit back and take some of this teaching you know, and appreciate this moment for what it was. So, yeah, that was one of my moments, man. Like, those memories will last a lifetime with me. So, George Carl, like, he was there, like, in the gyms. It, it still to this day, it baffles me. But um, knowing George a little bit and then watching him from a distance and then becoming a professional athlete myself and having relationships with coaches, like, I understand the type of player he was and I can appreciate the type of play. I mean, I can understand the type of coach he was and I can appreciate the type of coach he was. Hey, Nate, get your mans. Why was your boy tripping like that? Man, he was tripping, tripping. I said, oh, you, oh, you bobo. You need to chill out, man. Because he was cooking, too. He went to Franklin High School, the same high school that Jason Terry went. So he was basically the next up. And he was, I mean, he was dropping like 30, 40-point games like it was nothing. So he coming to practice doing crazy stuff. He could shoot lights out. He was like a smaller Gilbert Arenas and could jump. So once Eric Snow came around, who wasn't known as a great shooter, like Jimmy, listen, let's call it what it is. Jimmy could shoot better than Eric Snow. But Eric Snow was, he's a professional point guard, man. So Eric Snow started to body him, take him down to the post, and Doug Christie was dunking on him. And I was like, yo, Jimmy, man, like, you know how it is, like, it was like we was getting jumped and Jimmy was making it worse. Like, <laughs> shut up, bro. 
Like, we're getting beat up right now because you keep on talking. Just take this ass whooping and sit down. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. So, gosh, Nate, you just have so many different routes that we can take this conversation. I love what you said in terms of that experience with those guys and watching George Carl, how it shaped you a little bit, is it fair to say, when you became a professional athlete? Yeah, it did because um, I was able to appreciate coaches for um, something that was deeper than the title because some coaches you meet and, you know, you, I mean, you played the game. It's like, it's like you, you, you see them as this authoritative figure and that's how coaches approach it because they don't want to avail themselves. They're not going to show you different sides of themselves. Half the time they're going to walk right past you and not ask you how you're doing or how's your family doing. Um, so when you have those relationships, like there's a certain like barrier between mm -hmm. you and your coach. But at a young age, like I saw George Carl, a guy who was a millionaire and was friends with the guys that we looked up to, the Gary Paytons and Sean Kemp's, and he was in these gyms talking to us before our tournaments and, and helping us work through practice and teaching us certain things about the game and dropping jewels on us. And I just thought, like, damn, like that's the side of – a coach I always want to see. Now, it didn't work out that way. When I played in the league, there were certain coaches that they looked at it just like how I explained. I'm the coach, you're the player, that's it. I don't need to talk to you about anything else. You do what I say, we win some games, we both get paid, cool. But then there's coaches that were so-called, quote-unquote, players coaches, and they always reminded me of George Carl. And he mm -hmm. was like, you know, he was like that first example of what it would mean to have a coach that cared um, more about who you are and what's going on in your life as a person, um, or not more, but maybe just as much as what you do for them on the field or on the court. Right, right. But, Nate, so I'm listening to you, and you legit, like, were a baller. Like, you legit – not that you were lying when you said that in the beginning of our show, but, like, these stories, you was in the gym with guys that went to the NBA. Was it really as simple as I'm going to catch these footballs and do this touchdown dance when you decided to go to football? Now, it was a tad bit more complicated than that. Um, I remember my sophomore year, um, I was I was playing point guard, and this is when I really kind of mastered the art of taking care of the rock. I didn't turn over the, the ball. I could, I could slash to the cup. Um, my mid-range was solid. My defense was phenomenal. So it was easy for me to get people's attention. And then one tournament in particular was when people really started to take notice, and it was um, it was a tournament – in uh, California, and, and I was playing for Friends of Hoop at the time. And I remember us playing against this team from Los Angeles, and we were cooking. And I remember the other coach telling our coach, we got a guy coming to halftime, he's on our team, here he is, he's on the roster. And we're like, cool, it don't matter that he's going to get that work too. And <laughs> this dude walks in, he starts warming up, and we, we got the lead at halftime. And this dude starts, he don't, he don't shoot a layup, he doesn't shoot a free throw. He's shooting from, like, the hash. And I'm like, who is this? And he's bottom of the net. I'm like, all right, whatever. So the second half starts. I'm doing my thing. He comes down. He takes, like, two steps in front of half court and hits it all net. I'm like, damn, this dude got range. He does the same thing the next time down the court, all net. So I'm like, all right. The third time, he does a little move, shoots. So now I switch. I'm like, yo, I got him. And he looks at me like, you know how it is. Anytime a defensive player says, I got him, that's a talent. So he comes down, he, he hits me with a move, and he hits three, and he puts his hands up. 
like like you're gonna get the rest of these points and i'm like all right so now i'm strictly strictly just motivated by the fact that this young dude is talking trash and i want to compete with him so i start shooting i'm getting to the cup i'm getting in once i catch a fast break i take off from the dot at one hand i put my hands up and i remember my coach was like don't do that Nate. don't don't fall for his game we're Seattle. Oh, we're from Seattle. And we do, th- you know, it was one of those like, don't talk trash moments. Um, and I was like, whatever. I, c- I was already lost. So we're barking back and forth. I'm not gonna lie. He put up like 35 in one half. I had like 20. I had like 20. I had like 22, 10 and 10. Like I was getting busy. And uh, there happened to be a ton of scouts, and they came to watch him, and they ended up seeing me. And that dude was Gilbert Arenas. Um, and zero. Agent Zero Hibachi was cooking, and what was crazy is, like, I wasn't even focused on the scouts. I was so focused on talking trash to him that I ended up having the best game of the—I mean, my best game of the tournament. Um, and I remember the moment I got home, my uh, mailbox flooded with letters, and a ton of them were from Clemson. And I, I remember thinking, like, damn. And it was Rick Barnes, the head coach writing me letters saying, we'd love to have you come play point guard here um, with your potential at, at at six foot one and you being a sophomore and you're a young sophomore, uh, we can mold your game into something special. And then it became me trying to decide what I was going to do moving forward. My high school coach, rest in peace, Phil Lumpkin, he was like a Princeton offense, like passed the ball seven times, um, very meticulous, very detailed. And my JV coach, Coach Kalina, small white dude that will bark if you made a mistake. So I've mastered the art of playing the point guard position. And um, from there, I thought to myself, with the pressure, and I'm pretty chill. I don't get emotional. You yell at me. I listen to what you're saying, digest information, and I apply it. Um, And because I was able to do that, I knew what they were trying to teach me versus, like, the delivery which they were teaching me in. And I, I thought to myself, all right, these guys are yellers. Like, I had two coaches that were yellers and screamers. Do I want to deal with yellows? In my young mind, I thought that college is going to have to be like an exaggerated version of this. Do I want to deal with yellows and screamers being the point guard? Because now I'm the quarterback of the court for four years. And in my in my mind, I was having like an anxiety attack. I was like, oh, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. So I, I literally separated all my basketball letters and put them on one side of the room. And then I put all my football letters on the other side of the room. And I thought, all right, I'm going to count whoever sent me the most. And then I'm going to decide – Whatever the two sports are, I had the track ones, but I'm not running for four years. Forget that. Um, and I was like, you know what? I, I'm going to decide. What, if it was two football schools that won me, I'll decide between those two. And I remember my dad saying, Nate, that's not how it works. Like, they're just using more paper to send you more mail. Like, chill out. And I was like, well, I don't care. In my mind, this works. So I went home, and I saw Clemson. They sent me the most for basketball. And University of Nevada sent me the most for football. And from there, I just thought, I can play receiver, and they'll just throw me the ball. And there's no pressure. If we lose, they're probably going to talk to the quarterback or the head coach. If we win, I'm probably going to talk to the guy who scored the touchdowns, which could be me. Now, if I go play basketball, if we lose, they're going to be looking at the point guard. And if I get yelled at for four years, do I really want to do that? Is that a fun college experience? (laughs) So I just made this, like, very spontaneous decision to go to Nevada. And then when I had my recruiting trip to Nevada – they said, how many catches you have your senior year? Because we were a running school. I said, ah, 16. And they're like, 
we'll give you that in one game because we're a passing school. And I was like, damn, uh, okay, where do I sign? Mm-hmm. So that was that was Nate Burleson's method to choosing college. Very unorthodox, but it ended up working out because Nevada, they held true. Like my junior year, I I led the nation in catches, and one game I had 19 catches. It was It was crazy. Gee whiz. Well, we've got to take a quick break because, you know, Bill's got to be paid on these things. But we want to hear about a more recent tournament involving your daughter where you were making your presence known on the other side of the break. Oh, my goodness. Pure Hoops Media has four shows every week. And this one is Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with your girl, Monica McNutt. We have a new show each Thursday with dope guests like Nate Burleson. We share stories, opinions, and even hear from my pops, usually, although he had a bye week this week. Each Friday, BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman present the Pure Hoops podcast, where BJ brings the perspective of a player, executive, and an agent as he breaks down what's happening on and off the court. Each Monday, we have the Mike Wise Show with a master storyteller and his A-list guests like Jeff Van Gundy and next week's guest, Buck's co-owner, Mark Lazary. Finally, on Wednesday, We've got Catch and Shoot with Adam Stanko and Noah Kozlov. Please check out all of our shows. We know that you'll enjoy them. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks rolls on. We are getting the hoop side of one Nate Burleson, who you see on Good Morning Football, on NFL Today, on CBS Sports as well. And it has been fantastic stories so far, Nate. Now, you just told me about a tournament where... Your stock rise significantly back in the day, matching up with one Agent Zero, who is near and dear to us here in D.C. Uh, but more recently, you had an opportunity to play with your daughter, yes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little friendly game. You know, the season <laughs> ended. Uh, we get an invite. Um, you know, fathers and daughters out on the, on the court. And it's uh, just a casual game. No, no big deal. No big deal. No big deal at all, except you decided to um, do a little highlight action, I understand, rocking the rim on what? The girls are no taller than what, 5'4", five, 5'5"? Five, five? <laughs> yeah, not even that. I don't even think. I don't even think they, they're third grade. Third oh, yeah. fourth grade. And, uh, and uh, you know, here's the thing. Okay, so let's just break this all down. Uh, I, don't, I don't get on the court too often unless a kid calls me out. And he's usually – kids my son's age because I coach my son's 15-year-old team and I help coach my son's 13-year-old team. So occasionally they'll say, hey, Dad, let's get on the court. Let's move around a little bit. I just get to the bucket. I'll, I'll do a little jelly. You know, I'm still slick around the basket. So, like, I don't have to do much. Occasionally, though, they'll call me out. So what happened a couple months ago, let's, let's date this back a little bit, um, somebody on Little Nate's team, who's my 15-year-old, said, oh, Coach Nate, you can't, you can't dunk. I was like, what do you mean? You guys have heard about me dunking? Yeah, but you can't dunk right now. And I'm standing right underneath the rim, right after practice. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't stretched or anything. So I just jump up, I yank the rim, and I slap the backboard, and um, the, the glass shatters. This is at a, at a gym in uh, Tianek, New Jersey. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's embarrassing. So I, I immediately go to the bank, put some cash out. They have to fix the rim before the tournament the next day. I feel bad. Fast forward. To yesterday, my daughter is having this this game, and uh, and she's like, "Hey, daddy, you know, come and play with us." And I want you to really show off. I'm like, "Nah, baby, I'm gonna just go out there. I'll be below the rim. I'm not gonna be doing anything fancy." Which I did, but every time I touched the ball, the little girls yelling, "Duck it, duck it!" <laughs> so I, I tried to avoid it by like I tipped in one ball, 
and they noticed that like my my hand was at the rim when I tipped in somebody's and slab. And to them, you, you might as well put a cape on my back. They're all like, whoa. So then I'm like, all right, I'm going to shoot some jumpers, do some reverse layups, and I'm doing the trick layups, the horse horse shot layups. We're between the legs, 360, and it wasn't enough. Boom! Dunk it. I'm like, that layup was a degree difficulty of 10. And they're like, boom, dunk it. And then it's the end of the, end of the game, and they're like, all right, we've got a minute left. I, I'm cherry picking, and I'm like, all right, let me just give them what they want, and then they'll enjoy it. So I, I catch the ball, I take a few dribbles, I climb up with two feet, and I'm 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 influenced by the '90s, so I yank the rim. That's what we do, and I slap the backboard because that's what we do, and it immediately shatter. And then you can see on my Instagram that I just didn't expect it. I turn around, I feel so bad. Even my body language, I'm just like, oh my. God. And my wife, you can hear her say, oh my gosh, not again. And that, who, who does that, though? Like, even in my post, you read the caption, like, who does that, really? Like, at 37, two backboards in two months, like, at 21, 25, if I did that, man, I'd be bragging all day long. But at 37 with some little girls underneath you, that's just real bad. I just, I gotta get my life together. It didn't really do nothing for my spirit. You know, I'm I'm stressed out right now. That is a fantastic story, and I'm sure your daughter will remember it, and her friends will be teasing her about it for years. Or did the girls thought it was cool, though? No. Oh yeah, they thought it was the girls, the parents, the parents are sitting there <laughs> high fiving me. They're going crazy. I feel bad because you know the next game, the seven year, the seventh grade girls, they got to go side to side on the on the uh, small court hoops instead of the the full length where the official side hoops are. But like. Uh, they loved it, though. And my daughter, when I got home, she was just smiling from ear to ear. She was like, wait, because my, my sons had to stay here because one of my sons is on crutches right now because he busted up his ankle. So they stayed home. So we get in the car and she's like, I, I'm telling the boys. Nope. And she's running in the house. And she's like, dad shattered the backboard again. And they were like, what? And then and then my daughter paused and said, she's like, and mom got it on video. And it was crazy last night. So, um, yeah, it feels good, though. I mean, I'm 37. I can still dunk. I'm all right. That is epic. I love that. I mean, I, I just love that. My dad never shattered any backboards, but I do remember, like, heated games in our neighborhood where, like, all the dads would come out and there would be us versus the dads. And it was just, those are fantastic memories is the bottom line. Nate, this has been fantastic. If you are open to it, we'd love to have you back on the show down the road. Um, yeah, definitely, for sure. We gotta have you give us your bucket board and block. But before we do that, I have this question for you. As a professional athlete, what goes into a big-time free agency decision? You know, it. it I think nowadays it's changed. Uh, back in the day when I was watching... And maybe they just sold it this way. I feel like the 90s were built on teams being put together and free agents either sticking where they were or going somewhere to win a ring. Um, nowadays, it's almost like I'm trying to get myself in a market that can maximize my earning potential. You know what? I don't blame them. Like, you know, if if we weren't athletes and we went to college, the point of going to college is to leave college and get a great job. I think people forget that about NBA players, NFL players, Major League Baseball, the list goes on. We all went to college, and we're all looking for the best job. It just so happens that the NBA players, they got the best job. So now they're trying to maximize their earning potential 
And the way you can do that is going to New York. I think going to New York, you get the hustle and bustle of the city. You're mm-hmm. in the largest market in the world. Um, these brands are going to be tripping all over themselves to give you money outside of the money you're already getting. And on top of that, like your legend begins to grow. Now it's time for our signature rollout before we, we let you go. Um, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is the name of the podcast. So we're opening up this conversation. For you, you can go personal life. You can go NBA finals, NBA season, even if you want to give us some NFL nuggets. First, I need your bucket. Your bucket is your A++ thing that happened in the world of sports. It's a straight-up bucket. Okay. What's a straight-up bucket? Ooh, that's tough. I think, um, you know, I'm going to go a little different because I know you've done this before. I'll say the mid-'90s was – that was my favorite era of the NBA. Um, In the bucket from the 90s – was Scottie Pippen. And the reason I say that is because he was the ultimate wingman. And, you know, you can take it off the court and you can say, you know, as men and women, we, we need that one person that's just going to ride with us. And he was that for Jordan. But then on the court, even me as an athlete, it influenced me so much that I was comfortable on my own skin playing in the shadow of, Rand, of Randy Moss uh, when I first got drafted, playing in the shadow of Calvin Johnson. And for all of the young athletes, the young boys and girls who aren't blessed with the most speed, uh, the most strength, the most hops, even the most skill in their specific sport, guys like Scottie Pippen allowed us to believe that we got a place and not just like a place in the background. I mean, like a significant place in whatever sport that we want to play. So individuals like Scottie Pippen, like that's a bucket. Love that. Love that. All right. So shout out to Scottie Pippen, the bucket, your board, your board, think rebound. It may be something that on the surface is not fantastic, but it has some silver lining to it. What's your board, Nate? Oof. Um, my board is, my board is social media. I feel like when people look at it, there's a negative connotation to it. You know, guys are too sensitive. You know, people put their business out. You know, it's it's nothing but drama and, and, and falsehoods, people being phony and fake, and the list goes on. But in a day and age where kids uh, want to be seen, it's a great outlet for exposure. And we've seen that. Um, really ramp up over the last few years. I mean, you know, like I know, there was a time where you could be the most talented young boy, young girl in the world and be just another story, another hood legend, another person that didn't get a chance to shine, overlooked, couldn't get a scholarly, all these different reasons why that person is stuck at home working in a space that they don't want to work in because they never got their chance. So for me, that board is, it's social media, man. So for everybody listening, it's not just sports. Like if you have a craft, you have a passion, you have something, like the silver lining in social media is you can get your stuff out there mm-hmm. like, and, and don't hesitate to use that platform. Fantastic. All right, last thing. Bucket is Scottie Pippen. The board is social media. Your bucket is your get that thing out of here thing. Like you just don't want no more of whatever this is. Oh, get it out of there. Um. 
I say the goat conversation. Ah. You know, as much as I dive into it and I indulge in it anytime it's brought up, and I will continue anytime I'm at the barber shop or at the club or wherever I am with my boys. Let's just get rid of it because there's too many. You know, who's the best quarterback all the time? Yeah, you can say Brady because he has the most rings. Or you can say Joe Montana. Or you can go back in the day. Uh, Who's the best basketball player all the time? Of course, you know, people that love the 90s are going to say Jordan. But then before that, what about Will and uh, Kareem who revolutionized the position by revolutionizing a shot that never existed with the hook shot? So, like, and then now, like, LeBron. Like, look what LeBron has done on the court. Look at his numbers. Look at his clutch playoff moments. And then look at what he did off the court. Like, are we counting that in the GOAT conversation? Like, it's too many variables. So, for me, like, there's just too many GOATs. You know what I mean? Because if you really want to get real and you say, who's the best athlete of all time, I might sit here and say Serena Williams. Then what you going to say about that? You can't argue it because their accolades almost trump anything that some of these dudes have done in a space where they didn't have to work as hard as Serena. So. um Let's just let's get rid of that, man, because it's, it's either we're all goats, we're all kings and queens and gods at what we do, or there's no goats. I love that. I love that. So let me just run it back for the folks at home. Nate Burleson's Bucket, Board, and Block. Bucket, shout out to Scottie Pippen in the 90s and representing what a elite wingman would be. Your board, social media, hate it or love it, it serves a purpose in terms of getting your craft out there or exposing you to opportunities. And then your bucket, or excuse me, your block, which I love, is the GOAT conversation. That's, Nate, man, you got to come back on the show. I love all three of those. I got you. I got you, man. I got you. You Just give me the invite, and I'll be here. I appreciate it, Nate. Thanks for coming on. No problem. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. All right, friends. We're closing out buckets, boards, and blocks this week. Usually, I would give you my triple Bs, but this week, I've just got a bucket, and it's Nate Burleson. That was such a fantastic conversation. I love that he was going head-to-head with Jamal Crawford and Agent Zero. Man, he had so many great stories and really strong perspective. Um, So thanks to Nate for being our guest. Of course, he's of CBS Sports and NFL Network. Thanks to my outstanding producer, Bruce Bernstein, and my fantastic editor, Ben Wolfen. We'll be back next week with another episode of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. But until then, enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.